0: From Hyde Park, United Methodist in Tampa, Florida, this is The Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm your host, Matt Hotho. This week, the Reverend Dr. Lisa Wolf joins us to discuss the books of Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah. We give attention to their historical settings and what themes mark each book, and particularly with Hosea, how difficult and differing images of God can emerge in the prophetic texts. Lisa is professor of Hebrew Bible at Oklahoma City University in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Lisa's research focus is on women of the Bible and wisdom literature. In fact, Lisa wrote a small group study called Uppity Women of the Bible, and you may have done that in a small group at your church. Two quick notes before we begin. First, while our reading goes in the order of Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah, Lisa suggested that for the purpose of our podcast, we treat the texts in historical order. So we'll be going Amos, Hosea, Obadiah, and Joel. And secondly, Lisa references the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Now a quick historical refresher. In 922 BC, the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. These divisions and the conflict between Israel and Judah, as well as the other nations around them, lead to the issues that animate the minor prophets. You'll notice that she places each prophet in one of the two kingdoms. Now onto our conversation. Well, Lisa, it is great to have you with us,
1: joining us on our Bible Project journey. And now we are getting into what may seem like more unfamiliar territory. In fact, the the label that's been given to this section is The Minor Prophets. Sounds like a derogatory label. These works are uh, really important and have compelling messages. And we're glad that you're going to walk through uh, some of these books with us. Let's begin with that title, The Minor Prophets.
2: I think derogatory is a pretty good (laughs) description. Uh, I mean, it just makes them seem not very important. The reality is they're just short. So I usually refer to these books as the Book of the Twelve, which is how they are referred to in Jewish tradition. One thing to think about with this book is a little bit of a word search. So this can be kind of a fun thing if you're looking for a way to draw them together. There's a phrase, the day of the Lord. Mm -hmm that is repeated in almost all of these books and, or that some part of that is referred to on that day kind of thing. Now, whether the day of the Lord is a good thing or a bad thing depends on who you are and what you've been doing. So, uh, but that's kind of a theme through most of those books. And that's really what the prophets are about. It's not so much saying, you know, this is the be all and end all. We're not telling you the future. We're saying uh, this is what's likely to happen if you keep acting this way. Now, on the other hand, if you're able and willing to change, then you can see salvation.
0: Here's what a possible future could look like. And so the day of the Lord is both if you make the change and if you don't make the change, there's a day coming. (laughs) It's either going to be good or bad.
2: Right, exactly.
1: Well, can you say more about uh, where these books fall historically in terms of the the Israelite timeline in relation to the exile? um, And what is the sort of the historical order of the books that we're talking about today?
2: So when I teach intro Bible, I always have my students start out by memorizing the biblical timeline. Uh, the Bible is not arranged chronologically. Now, the book of the 12 probably was uh, originally put together in a way that um, the the canonizers, if you will, probably thought that was chronological. So there are some things that historically we can look back and say, oh, this is probably why this book was here or there. Um, But I always like to teach these books in chronological order as best we are able. Mm. Now, Uh, Jonah and Joel are really tricky because they are difficult to date. Ah. And so there's a fair amount of debate about those. We start out with a group of prophets from the Assyrian period. So that would be the 8th and 7th centuries BCE when the Assyrians were the big bad superpower of the day. I always tell my students they can remember the Assyrians were the ass of the eighth century. Yes, yes
0: the badasses.
2: It, it, yes, it has. I mean, a little bit of alliteration: Assyrians ass, eighth century, and some like quasi profanity. So that always makes it memorable. <laughs> so, in the Assyrian time period, when the Assyrians were threatening, uh, so they were mainly threatening the northern kingdom where Samaria was the capital, uh-huh. and they they conquered the Northern kingdom in 722. And after that time, all that was left was Judah and probably some refugees who came down from the North. So we get quite a bit of of really important material from that time. And some of it is uh, historically illuminating, um, particularly in Isaiah. If you've been studying Isaiah, you've you've run across some of that. So we get some of the material in Isaiah in, in this time period, we also get Amos and Hosea and Micah are all 8th century prophets. The next prophetic period is the Babylonian period. This is just the next time period, really, when the Babylonians were threatened, threatening the southern kingdom, all that was left, Judah. So by now, Babylon has conquered Assyria, mm-hmm. and the Babylonians are the big bad superpower. We're in the 6th century now. So in 598, the um, Babylonians take over Jerusalem. In 587, they destroy it after some uh, time of rebellion. So during the Babylonian period, we have Zephaniah, Nahum, Obadiah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, hearts of Isaiah, again, Mm -hmm. and Ezekiel. Mm -hmm. So this is a really crucial time, and... um, McGray, you said, you know, where are things in relation to the exile? I mean, that's always the point. The exile is the events. Mm-hmm. And then the last time period is the Persian period. So the Persians conquered Babylon in 539, led by Cyrus, the Persian king. And so the Persian period goes on really through the end of the Hebrew Bible until Alexander the Great, uh, takes over and then we get the Hellenistic period. So in the Persian period, we have Haggai, Zechariah, parts of Isaiah, again, Joel, probably, and Malachi and Jonah. Jonah is usually put in this uh, period.
1: Wow, that is so illuminating because for any of us who are forced to memorize the books of the Bible in canonical order, we think about Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and we all we just assume that they're all basically in the same kind of chronological order. Uh, but uh, because of what you've said, we're actually in this episode going to be taking it in a different order, not to disorient the listener, but to let them know that the order in which we will take this according to the timeline that you've shared with us is Amos first, then Hosea, and then really a a big jump in history before we talk about Obadiah and then another jump to get to Joel. So not to confuse people who have memorized the canon uh, in an order, but Amos, Hosea, Obadiah, Joel for, for this time period.
0: And in the same way that most preaching today probably has markers of the current pandemic that we're in, or the current political situations we're in, um, could you speak to what some of the markers might be of an Assyrian document, a Babylonian document, and a Persian document?
2: Yeah. So um, in the Assyrian period, there are certain issues that were important, such as social justice related to economic inequities. There was a large gap between rich and poor. Uh, There are comments that we see that, um, show that the wealthier classes were taking advantage of the lower classes economically. Also, another issue during that time were things related to worship so that uh, people were maybe kind of doing the motions, going through the motions of worship, but not practicing social justice. And so, and then in the Babylonian period, Things that are that we would note there would be, for instance, the absence of a temple. Mm -hmm. So the temple was destroyed in 587. I mean, that was Mm -hmm. in a way like that's the event Mm -hmm. of the Hebrew Bible time period. Mm -hmm. Because in the ancient world, the temple was, uh, I mean, I don't want to overstate this because it, it wasn't, especially for the ancient Israelites, it wasn't exactly where God lived or the proof of God's existence. But the idea in the ancient world was that if a foreign power uh, destroyed your a temple, more or less your God is dead. Mm-hmm. And so that's why Ezekiel is so amazing, that opening vision because God has wheels and eyes and can go anywhere and be anywhere, which was very powerful to a people who had been, taken away from their home and their temple have been destroyed so god still existed one and two god could be with them in another
1: place well there are some interesting features about each of these books uh and we thought we would uh, just do a an overview of anything you find interesting in uh and again in this order amos hosea Obadiah and Joel. Right.
2: So I mentioned that Amos was probably working in 760 to 750, and we get that from the very first verse in this book. That verse, we would call that the superscription. I think of it as a title page. So it tells who the kings were in the time, and it even mentions an earthquake. So those are the kinds of little things that scholars look at for trying to date a book. And Uh, So this is in the Assyrian period. It's before the north fell to Assyria. And there is some evidence throughout the book that it was probably edited some centuries later Mm. by a later community who was using the book um, during the Babylonian period. Mm. So Amos was a prophet from the south, from Judah, who was preaching to the north. Now, he wasn't from very far south. One of the most powerful literary uh, pieces in, in Amos, it's, it's a really effective rhetorical movement. Is, it starts in chapter one, verse three, and it continues all the way through the end of chapter two. So if you look at one, verse three, we get, thus says the Lord. Now, first of all, that little phrase, komar uh, adonai in Hebrew, just three words in Hebrew, uh, thus says the Lord, this is the prophet's way of saying, okay, I'm speaking for the Lord now, mm-hmm. just so you know. <laughs> These are God's words, not mine. So thus says the Lord, this is the, the tip off that an oracle is coming. In other words, a message from the Lord. So thus says the Lord, and you can just skim ahead to see how that this is going to repeat mm-hmm. And it, at least in my New Revised Standard Version, I they are all sectioned off, mm-hmm. starting with, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. Yep. Then we get this little thing that is like math mm-hmm. after that in, in three, and it continues in the rest of these sections. For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, three plus one is the equ- equation <laughs> I guess. And, and that little phrase repeats throughout. And, and the poetic effect of that is these transgressions are increasing. Mm-hmm. And then it calls out a location. Here it's mm-hmm. Damascus. That Amos talks about some of Israel's. Remember, Amos is speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel. It speaks about some of their both near and far enemies. Uh, at the beginning of two, it's Moab. So that is a historic enemy to the people there. And then in 2-4, Amos names Judah. Mm-hmm. Now I imagine that Amos's northern audience, just north of Judah, right? They split from Judah. And uh-huh. when the, the kingdom divided in 922, so they were, you know, it's like the high school football teams or for me, it was marching bands that you're rival because they're right next door. Right. right. And I imagine that Amos's audience, when they heard him, I mean, he's doing this like rhythmic preaching for three and for four. And this is the Lord. And and then names a place and it kind of hits home for the people. And then they hear Judah. Ooh, he's going to preach against Judah. Cool. And they're probably getting all wound up and hot and bothered and excited here. And then just when Amos has them on the edge of their seats, bam, in 2-6. Who does Amos name? <laughs> but his audience. The home crowd. Well.
1: The home crowd. Exactly.
2: <laughs> right. Right. So the audience thought that Amos was going to tell them what they wanted to hear, and then he turns it right on them. So really effective rhetoric.
1: And again, if the home crowd is upset at Amos, he began that oracle in the very same way. Uh, God is saying this, not me. Don't don't be upset with me. This is what God is saying.
2: Right, and we get some great specifics, too, if we back up to where we were in 2, verse 6. Look for why is Amos so mad at the people, or why is Amos mad on behalf of God? And in 2, verse 6, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Now, I mean, that is some consumerism that is probably going to hit home. And uh, another place that is, I think, pretty well known in Amos is in Amos 5. I hate and despise your yeah, festivals, right. but mm. let justice roll down like wires, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, right? Not Not everybody knows Martin Luther King was quoting the Bible when he said that, but he was one thing I like to clarify here is it seems unlikely that Amos is just condemning worship. Uh Uh But I think uh, probably more likely what was happening is that Amos was saying, um, don't you go and do those worshipful things and think it's going to appease me if you are not doing social justice because of that, where it ends up driving home justice and righteousness.
1: So he's not disparaging worship here. Uh, He's disparaging disparaging worship that does not translate into a commitment to justice. Right. Well, let's move to Hosea.
2: This is one of those books that should make us wonder whether or not we should give Bibles away to third graders. (laughs) And it's probably not even the best example of that. I have preached on it before for the reason of saying we have to struggle with the difficult parts in the Bible, the Mm -hmm. so-called texts of terror, to use a a title from Phyllis Tribble. If we're going to say this book is sacred to us in any way, shape, or form, if it is our canon, we have to struggle with this. And the difficulty in struggling with books like Hosea is that when we do that struggle— it will change our theology and it will change our view of biblical authority. And a lot of people fear that they will not come out on the other side of that and get to stay in their congregation. Truly. And so I think uh, the project you're doing is so important because I think when people know, wow, my pastor, my pastors have thought about this, right?
1: Well, this is a great case study for us to get right to the heart of the (laughs) Purpose of the Bible project, which is to read a text like Hosea without fear or frustration.
2: If we look at the kings, we get a time period of about 750 to 725 BCE. So we're still in the Assyrian period. Hosea, unlike Amos, is a northern prophet to the north. So he's preaching in, in the northern kingdom before the fall of the north to Assyria. And the emphasis here is on idolatry so what happens in chapter one is an extended metaphor a marital metaphor and so uh it is posed as hosea having a wife who is probably a better way of translating this would be promiscuous the point is that she is not uh, strictly committed to Hosea. This is a metaphor for the relationship between Israel and God. However, it's so extended, we get children with <laughs> names that are meaningful. It's easy to read it like, oh, this is a literal guy and a literal wife. Um, and it, to some extent, you could do that. There is a thing in the prophetic literature that is called a sign act. Mm-hmm. So a prophet gives the people a sign from God by doing something. So sign hyphen act. Mm. And one way we could almost ask, is this a sign act? Mm. Like this actual Mm. prophet is supposed to really go marry this unfaithful woman and have these children and give them these names? Or is it strictly metaphorical? I mean, we can't answer that. Mm. But I think it's always important for people to notice, especially when the literature shows its hand so clearly as this one does that there is for sure a metaphorical level here. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an awkward metaphor. That's probably a really light term to use for it. (laughs) Um, Because I mean, we take relationships very seriously. They're, they're important to us and sacred to us. And they, they were to the, you know, the culture that was writing the Hebrew Bible Okay, but back to chapter 11. So in chapter 11, it's so beautiful. Here God is teaching Ephraim. Ephraim's a a synonym for Israel, the Northern Kingdom. This is in 11.3, teaching Ephraim how to walk. Uh, Back in 11.1, Israel was a child who I loved and called out of Egypt. and, And then in three, I took Ephraim in my arms. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. Hmm. I bent down and fed them. Uh, There's this great documentary called Babies. I don't know, it came out 10 years ago or so. And it followed, there's no dialogue. It just followed babies around the world and in their first year of life. And there's this baby, the baby's learning to walk and walking alongside mama, who in this culture, she was wearing, the mama is wearing a skirt and that's all. Because that was the culture there and the baby falls and skins his knee and mama bends over and nurses him and to me when when I saw that scene I thought of this verse mm-hmm. I bent down to them and fed them it's it's really I think very maternal imagery and that really ramps up even down in um verse 8 and, and here you can also see this theology that's very unfamiliar to all of us, uh, I think, as contemporary Christians. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart recoils within me. Here we get this deity who is struggling mm. with the idea of what I think the audience would have perceived as rightful punishment. Mm. And... Then it goes on to say, my compassion grows warm and tender. I will not again destroy Ephraim, the northern kingdom. I am God and no mortal, the holy one in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. I mean, this is one of those places where... I think the lectionary can be a real problem or, or even an approach that says, well, we just read Hosea 1 or it, we're going to do samples. If you don't pair what we see in Hosea 1 and 2 with what we see here at the end of Hosea, we really miss the point because the point is mercy,
1: well, we are uh, rounding the corner of this incredibly uh, rich conversation with you, Lisa, uh, uh, landing just in our remaining time on Obadiah and Joel. Um, are there any kind of highlights that you find intriguing about either of these books? So
2: Obadiah is one chapter. Obadiah is all about a place called Edom. So you need to find Edom on the map. It's southeast of Judah. Obadiah's oracle, the whole message there is bad Edom and supporting Judah. So this is about an event. It's about the destruction of Judah by Babylon. So we're soundly in the Babylonian period here. If, If we look, for instance, in Obadiah verses 10 through 16, we can see some references to what Edom did while Babylon was destroying Judah, they did not help. Mm. Now, the other thing that's going on in Obadiah is metaphorical, which is that Edom is a stand-in for Esau, and Judah is a stand-in for Jacob. So that's back to where when we read Genesis, we're not just reading about individual people. We're reading about groups of people, tribes, so something that we do have going on here perhaps is, a, an or at least a reference to Edom, uh, is also on that kind of metaphorical or story level. So the book really is just that one point. Bad Edom, but God <laughs> is on Judah's side from that time of the Babylonian destruction.
1: Let's go to Joel.
2: So Joel is... Very hard to date. There are, there's a fair amount of debate about that. And uh, one of the most, I think, compelling things about Joel is its use of the insect, the locust. There's a locust plague uh, going on in Joel. And this is a major theme there. And it's probably metaphorical for the enemies of whoever's writing, but that's again, somewhat up for debate.
0: So it's almost like the imagery is so vague in Joel that it makes it impossible to date it. It's not, it, like the locust could literally be any invading army.
2: Right. Which it could make it seem meaningless, but it also can make it useful for almost any time.
0: Right. 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 It's, it's a broiler plate prophetic statement. Evergreen. Mm-hmm. Or evergreen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: The thing is with the book that the Day of the Lord uh, that I mentioned before is something that we find um, in this book. And the Day of the Lord is about both judgment and jewel and salvation. Um, so again, it it depends on which side of God you're on.
0: Well, that covered a lot of ground. These minor prophets may be minor in length, but they have major themes and we could spend a lot more time discussing them. I am particularly thankful for Lisa's candor about the difficulties presented by the marital metaphors in Hosea. When we struggle with texts, when we wrestle with our Bible, our theology may change. And there can be a lot of fear in the unknown of what lies on the other side of that change. We want this podcast in Hyde Park United Methodist to be a place where you can wrestle with your theology and know that in the midst of that wrestling and that uncertainty, we will support you and continue being in relationship with you. We can handle your doubts, your fears, and your questions, and God can too. We're still worshiping online Sundays at 930 and 11am. You can join us on Facebook or at hydeparkumc.org forward slash live. You can connect with us on Facebook by searching for The Bible Project 2020 and request to join. McGray DeVega produced this episode. Monica Larges provided editing from Austria. I'm Matt Hotho. I'll see you next week.